Right. Hey, the man's coming around, and he's going to deal with all the evil in this world, isn't he? So I think an updated version of that video needs to be made. That was about 20 years old. The upload on YouTube is 17 years old. Yes, ma'am. Because we are going to talk about uh, something that he talks about in that song. Well, I also needed a filler for time, and so that's part of it. (laughs) Well, this is the world we live in, isn't it? And the Lord is going to come back and he's going to deal with all the evil, all the fallenness in this world. We have to come to grips with how deep sin goes and how nasty sin is. But equally, we come to grips with everybody is going to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be justice done in this world. It's the world you're living in. Yep, yep. I mean, it's, it's just a tragedy. And we contribute to it. It's the ugliness of our own sin. And so uh, one of those things that he talked about in the song was uh, the virgins are all trimming their wicks, and we're going to be there in just a few moments. But how about I pray, and then we'll get into our lesson today. Father, we thank you so much that this world is not all that there is. We thank you that this isn't some purposeless existence, uh, but that you have explained to us how we came to be, that you spoke all things into being, You've explained how this world is going to be redeemed. It's through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that all things will be reconciled to you through his blood. And Lord, we ask that as we put ourselves this morning in the right frame of mind here in fellowship together, looking to your word, that you would cause us to be people of peace, people of hope, people of truth, that we would not be people who shy away from the nastiness of this world, but face it head on with the word of God in hand, and that we would point all people to you, that we would tell people about Jesus, and that we would find our hope in the fact that you are going to reconcile uh, all things, that this is something you are going to do. It's not wishful thinking, God, we can be certain of this. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning in this endeavor as we seek to be built up in you and to honor you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are on page 31, the bottom of page 31 in your notes. If you don't have page 31, let me know. I don't know if I got the sheets out to everybody that needed them. Page 31. Got it? Okay. Well, we were talking about hermeneutics, and the, one of the most important things that you can ever remember about how to interpret the Bible is that context matters. Context matters, okay? And we're going to see that this morning. Each book of Scripture, no no matter if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you can go to each book of Scripture and see how it's written with purpose to a certain people in a specific time and in a specific place. You have that blank there on your sheet almost all the way down, right above the word literal. Context is the key to interpretation. So you have to embrace the context of each passage of Scripture, each book of Scripture, to understand it rightly. I think I left here where it says in our doctrinal statement, we believe in the normal, literal, and consistent interpretation of the Scriptures. And we'll talk about that here in a moment, what that means. And our interpretation of the Bible is to be literal, grammatical, historical, and consistently contextual. So if you see, going into page 32 also, we have these titles in bold, literal, grammatical, historical, consistently contextual, and we're going to define what those mean. 
Okay, because the goal here is for you all to be good students of Scripture. That you wouldn't just take my word for it, that you wouldn't just take the guy on TV's word for it, or whatever the case may be, but that you would go to the Scriptures and see for yourselves what the Scriptures have to say and be taught by God uh, through the Scriptures, okay? So first, let's talk about uh, what it means to be literal. The Bible means what it says apart from any hidden meanings. The Bible means what it says apart from any hidden meanings. Have you ever heard somebody try to bring out hidden meanings in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Perhaps you've seen books sold in bookstores. The secret code of Revelation. Or cracking the, the code of Hebrew. and then all Because what's true in Hebrew is they don't have numbers that are separate. You know how we've got... Uh, you know, they might look the same, but we've got a lowercase b and we've got a 6. Okay, in Hebrew, that's not the case. What they have are certain markings that, you know, that look like this that correspond to numbers. So this could equal, this is made up because I don't know Hebrew. I know Greek, not Hebrew. That could mean b or that could mean 6. And so they go to the Hebrew language and they say, look, if you add these numbers together and you divide by this and you multiply by that, and if you go here and you go there, ha-ha, secret code. Now, the problem with that is what? What's the problem with that? There are a couple big problems that you should immediately be able to point out. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the big problems with that is that God didn't intend for us to read the Bible that way, right? God didn't intend for us to go uh, become an expert in hidden meanings in order to find out what he was really trying to communicate to us, okay? Um, that's a really big problem. Another big problem is that you can make the Bible say whatever you want when you do that, can't you? Because you can find a code in the, you know, crack the secret code of the Bible that says, you know, America is going to be going through this in the year 2025. See, look, bada, 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 bada. Okay, well, I bet if I wanted to, I could go in there and I could say, well, actually, that says Mexico is going to go through this in the year after. See, you were just off a little bit. It's, it's goofy. It's silly. And so we, we don't pursue hidden meanings in the Bible. We believe that the Bible means what it says apart from any hidden meanings. Now, I'll oh, go ahead, Virginia. The what? The Bible code? Okay, bottom of 31 there. I've never read that book, but I would imagine it probably is. Well, because it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, all conspiracies are interesting. Okay? It's just the reality of it. I love conspiracy theories, to be honest with you. But, <clears throat> and the more that they keep coming true, the, the more I'm interested in them. Um, but, but yeah, anybody who says, look, I found, you know, there's code in the Bible that no one has ever discovered before, just stop listening. That's a time to stop listening. Yeah, yeah okay. Let me read a, a couple of um, affirmations and denials from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. There was a, uh, there's the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. That's a, a really famous document. Most of that same group of people wrote the... Uh, the statement on hermeneutics, on Bible interpretation. So this is Article 7 from that. And, and I love this statement. I love what they say through here. Everything has a, every article has an affirmation and a denial. So Article 7 says, We affirm that the meaning expressed in each biblical text is single, 
definite and fixed. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just dwell on that for a moment. The meaning of any biblical text is single, definite, and fixed. Now, those are interesting, interesting phrases. Um, but let's consider what that means. Single meaning, there is no double meaning. No biblical text has a double meaning where there was one meaning, uh, perhaps that was, you know, that God intended at this point in history, and then there's another meaning that God intended later in a point in history. No double meaning. But every passage of Scripture has a single meaning. Every text of Scripture has a single meaning. Definite meaning it can be defined. Definite meaning that it's not mysterious. Definite meaning that it's clear to the people who are understanding it. And fixed meaning that it doesn't change over time. It doesn't evolve from one thing to another. So the meaning is single, definite, and fixed. So the difference between single and fixed would be uh, someone who believes there's a double meaning is like, well, there have been two meanings the whole time, but one of them was hidden for a while. And then after a while, that hidden meaning came out, and the original people who got it were never going to be able to see that. And usually they say that that hidden meaning is the true meaning. Okay, so the, the original people just saw the, you know, the shallow part, the surface. But over time, the true meaning comes out. The, the uh, people who deny that there's a fixed meaning say, well, yeah, there was one meaning at that time, but then over time, that meaning changed. So at the time, you know, when God said X or ABC, that was true. It meant ABC. But then a thousand years later, now it means XYZ. It changed. Now, you can see how gnarly of a conversation you can get into with someone who believes something like that, right? But if we believe that each passage of Scripture is single, definite, and fixed, well, now we can actually, you know, go to the Bible and work with that. So, we affirm that the meaning expressed in each biblical text is single, definite, and fixed. And then it says we deny that the recognition of this single meaning eliminates the variety of its application, so just because we recognize there's a single meaning to every passage, does that mean that we all apply it the same way in our lives? No, absolutely not. So for instance, when Paul says in Romans 14 that uh, there's one person who says he can eat vegetables and meat, and then another person who says I can eat only vegetables. Anybody in our churches today having this argument? Uh, well, some maybe, but in our church we could say between vegetarians and omnivores, are they arguing about that? No. But you, can you apply that same kind of thing to other discussions that we have? Some people say we should sing hymns only, and others say we should sing hymns and praise songs, praise band, modern worship songs. Hey, well, you can apply those same principles in a different way. Does that change the original meaning of the text? Well, no, it doesn't. It's a, just a different application. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that? On that point? Okay, I was going to read another one, but it's kind of long, and we got other stuff to get to, so I'll leave it at that, okay? Let's, uh, oh, okay, let's jump to uh, these texts here. You got Genesis 1 and Matthew 25, so let's all go to these together. Genesis chapter 1, and let's consider some case studies, some case studies here as it pertains to literal, clear meanings or symbolic hidden meanings, 
Genesis chapter 1, of course, is the account of creation. Genesis 1. Okay, now as you run your eyes over Genesis 1, how many times does it say day? You don't have to give me a precise answer. Okay, more than one, right? But no more than seven, okay? (laughs) It says day, day, day. Okay, now what about um, numbering? Do we have numbering for first day, second day, third day? Okay. You see, pretty much at the end of each paragraph, if your Bible breaks it down by paragraph, you'll see that. But the end of verse 5, the end of verse 8, the end of verse 13, the end of verse 19, the end of verse 23, you have you know, these numbers of days, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. What about morning and evening? Do you see that in there? Okay. If you look at those same verses, the last verse of each paragraph, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, how many times does it show up? Each time? Yeah. Yeah, and you can go to the last verse of the whole chapter and see that for the sixth day. Okay, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you've heard Kim Ham talk through this, how every time in the Bible where you have day mentioned with a number, with morning and evening, it refers to a literal 24-hour period. Now, there are, of course, times when day doesn't mean day, like when it talks about the great day of the Lord. That's not going to be a literal 24-hour period. But it doesn't say that that will be one day, giving a number to it. It doesn't say that there will be morning and evening that day, kind of defining the parameters of the 24-hour period. It doesn't say that. But here in Genesis 1, you get that six times. So what is the literal, normal, contextual interpretation of how many days it took God to create? Six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Right. Any reason to look for a hidden meaning there? Now, people will look for those, right? People will say, well, this is all poetry, so the numbers before each day don't mean those actual numbers, and the morning and evening doesn't mean a literal morning and a literal evening, and day doesn't mean a literal day. Some people will say there are gaps between the days. That, okay, yeah, he did that on day one, but between day one and two, there could have been a million years. Or, you know, bump it on down the line wherever you want to put it. And however, many, however much time you need, just throw that in there. That's called the gap theory. Well, between days three and four, there was, you know, 400 million years or whatever. Is there any reason to do that when you go to Scripture and you're looking at Scripture? Now, is there a reason to do it if you're letting what the modern scientific community says guide your interpretation of Scripture? Well, yeah, then you have reason to do it. But if you're just going to the Word of God and you're reading the Word of God, do you have reason to do that? No, you don't. Okay. Um, now, here's an interesting one, Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, let's all go there, and then I'll take questions after this one. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, here are the virgins trimming their wicks, as Mr. Cash, the man in black, was talking about. Someone want to read the first 13 verses, Matthew 25, 1 to 13? Who can read that for us? Stan, go ahead. Can you sound like Johnny Cash, too, while you do it? Okay, all right. (laughs) 
How thunderous is the end of verse 10, the door was shut. Okay, so I know you're looking at this for the first time in a while here this morning. This is on the fly. I'm not expecting any kind of deep answer here. Someone want to take a stab of just generally what this parable is about that Jesus gives here. Just generally keep it. Okay, very good. Being ready for his return. And what's the difference between the five prudent or wise virgins and the five foolish virgins? Five were? Yeah, the five weren't. So, who do those virgins represent, do you think? Okay, so in one sense, perhaps all of us. Okay, there's another sense you could say that these are, these are all professing believers. Uh, there's an interpretation that says, well, look, they've got lamps. They all, ha- all ten have lamps. And so perhaps that, lamps, that lamp is a uh, profession of faith. They're professing believers, but not all of them have oil. So not all of them have true faith. That's one sense. John MacArthur preaches it that way. Um, but, yeah, Stan. Yes, there you go. That's, that's essentially what I was just saying, yeah. Okay, what do you think about this interpretation? Wait a second, Jesus said there were five foolish, and they're really uh, bridesmaids, is really what's in view here, and five wise. And we all have five senses. We can hear, see, taste, smell, touch. And so what Jesus is actually talking about is using your five senses foolishly in disobedience to him, or using your five senses wisely in obedience to him, and Jesus was actually teaching us about how we can appropriately use our senses. <laughs> okay, so now, is that, is that a, a heretical thought that God would want us to obey him with all of our being? Well, no, it's not a heretical thought. But is, can you get that from that text? Hmm... That would be one of those like hidden or deeper meanings. Origen, the early church father Origen, he's the one who taught that. Uh, his, influ- his, uh, his hermeneutic, the way he interpreted Scripture, really influenced Augustine. Maybe you've heard of Augustine. Origen really influenced Augustine. And Origen taught that there were four levels to reading Scripture. What I'm talking about today with the meaning what it says apart from hidden meanings, that's just level number one. That's playing in preschool or daycare. That's all that is. But then there's a deeper, deeper, deeper meaning. And you get all the way to the bottom, and there's the gold of the hidden secret meanings of Scripture. Dangerous game. And it's not, not something that we'll do here. Okay, that's just not something we'll do here. So I wanted to give you a couple of examples of how that happens in the text uh, with people who you might hear teach. Okay, thoughts or questions on... Literal hermeneutic versus hidden meanings, hermeneutic. Okay, so yeah, you weren't here last week. It's on page 30, right underneath, or 31, sorry, 31, right underneath where it says hermeneutics in bold, you have a couple of blanks there. It says hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. So that's what that is. So basically, it's a fancy word that means how we read the Bible. Or how we understand the Bible. Okay? Yep. 
It's, it's basically a Christian word. Yeah, I mean, even though it can be used in other places, it, it's basically how we interpret. Okay? So if you, if you want to just put a synonym in your head for hermeneutics, it's interpretation. Yeah. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Sure. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. I don't know. I would have to go look on that one. I I don't have an answer. Yeah, no, that's a great observation. And that is a great uh, example of biblical interpretation. You look at the details, right, and examine. So, yeah, I'd have to check on that. James. Hmm. You are correct. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that didn't come to, come to mind there. But yeah, that's right. I mean, Sabbath observance begins Friday night when the sun goes down. Go. Yeah, I mean, but accepting it as it is means you have to understand it, right? I mean, so you, you read it, but then you have to figure out what it means to a certain degree. And what I'm saying is that should be the most normal way possible. In the same way that you interpret uh, an ad on, on TV. You're taking it as it is. It's just a, an ad on TV that's being presented to you. But there is a process of understanding there, right? Where you have to, where you have to interpret what is being said. <laughs> I mean, and, and the thing is with... Uh, English speakers among English speakers, it's become so natural, second nature to us, right, that we don't even think of it as interpreting because we just read or we just hear, and it is what it is. But there is a process of interpreting uh, that has to take place to a degree. So it, a lot of, it's subconscious for a lot of us, but yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, and that's good. That's fine. I mean, because what you're basically saying is just interpret it normally like you would a book because it is a book, right? You interpret it normally. God, God intended for us to understand what he said. And so we don't go on a wild goose chase with the meaning. God didn't lead us into a wild goose chase, thankfully. Okay? All right, good. Let's go over to page 32 and talk about grammatical what it means that we don't only interpret literally, but also grammatically. The Bible features different genres and figures of speech. Different genres and figures of speech. And we have to account for that in our interpretation. I'll give you a few examples here in a moment. Genres. You guys remember uh, Alex Trebek on Jeopardy? Every time he would say genre, he would say it like the French way. Genre. He would always say it that way. It was always sounded weird. The Bible features different genre and figures of speech. Do I sound smart when I say it? Do I sound like Alex Trebek? Okay. All right. Well, I'll accept it. Well, let's go to Exodus 6, 6 together. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. And we're going to start with a real easy one, okay? Exodus 6, 6. So here's a good example, <clears throat> Joe, of... 
the interpretation process, even as it might seem subconscious, this is something that we have to do when we encounter figures of speech. Someone want to read Exodus 6.6? 6? Who's got that? Hey. Okay, can you spot the figure of speech there? Let me help you. How long is God's arm? Anybody want to guess how long it is? And does God use the metric system or a a standard? Okay. So there is a figure of speech in there. Everything is obviously literal. Everything means what it says. But there's a figure of speech in that God is going to to deliver them with an outstretched arm. God doesn't have an arm, does he? Hey, he is not made of parts like we are. He has no outstretched arm. And so what's the point of him using that figure of speech? Hmm? Good. And he's going to be the one initiating. He's the one who's active and they're passive in this. Yeah, you you can get all of that from this figure of speech. But we are not to read that and see, like, how, I mean, how tragic would it be? All the beautiful things that are in this verse, how tragic would it be if you went to, if someone was talking to you and said, see, what God wants us to realize from this passage is that he is a man and he has an arm like us. That would be so, so sad. You're missing the whole point, right? And so we recognize that this is a figure of speech. And what's important whenever we see figures of speech is we look for the point behind it. Okay? it it's, it's good to see not just uh, that, okay, yeah, this is a, a figure of speech and move on. But what, what does that imply about the situation? That God is going to deliver them with an outstretched arm. It means that God is going to rescue them. He's going to be active. He's going to uh, reach out to them in the way that we use that phrase today. Another one can be found in Isaiah 40, 31. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. When God says that he will deliver them or redeem them with an outstretched arm, what kind of figure of speech is that? Do you remember? Is it a metaphor? Is it a simile? Is it, what is it? Yeah, that's right. So Exodus 6.6 is a metaphor. Now someone read Isaiah 40.31. Who's got that? Mike, go ahead. All right, where's the figure of speech here? Yeah, how many of you have uh, mounted up with wings like eagles? What's it like up there? (laughs) Now, if you've done like base jumping or something, that's different, okay? But here's God's promise to his people that this is going to happen. And kind of what you got going on here is both metaphor and simile, right? And so you've got, uh, they will mount up with wings, metaphor, like eagles, okay, that's a comparison, you got some simile action going on, and so I'll just put simile here, and they're all over the Bible, there are all kinds that we could pick, but there you have uh, a simile, 
Okay? And then let's look at one more and then we'll I'll stop for questions. John 10, 7. One more figure of speech. This should be pretty evident to you to see the figure. Okay, who can read that for us? Who's got it? It's a short verse. Be strong. Thank you, Connie. Okay, how many hinges does Jesus have? <laughs> Is he an actual door? Okay, so um, he's using a figure of speech here to communicate something. What's his, what's his point in John 10, 7? Yeah, it's similar to John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, if we're going to go to God, if we're going to go to the truth, if we're going to go to uh, the love and peace and hope of the gospel, it's through Jesus, isn't it? Okay? I am, and of course in John, he has all these great I am statements, Jesus does, that are all uh, metaphorical. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the shepherd of the sheep. Okay? Uh, I am the door. I am the bread of life. On and on it goes. Okay? Thoughts or questions on... Accounting for genre and figures of speech in the Bible. Yeah, um, most people who are, um, I don't know, like average IQ, maybe even below average IQ or better, uh, can pick up on that pretty simply, right? I mean, I, there aren't many people, I, I, like another one um, we could have gone to is in Matthew 23, when Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. There's a simile, as a hen gathers her chicks. So for anybody to read that as Jesus is communing that, communicating that he's a female chicken, I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, so the vast majority of them are quite obvious, um, so I don't think it's important that anybody get hung up on that, like, oh, no, I don't know figures of speech really well. I think we all do, just instinctively. Um, but there will be some tougher passages that you come across, and you say, okay, now, wait a second. Is this, is this God using a figure of speech, or is this God saying something, like, literally, wooden literally? Because um, everything's literal. It's just a matter of, is it wooden literal, or is he using a figure of speech? And so, there are a few passages that can be tough. But don't be intimidated by that. If you ever have any questions, you can... Ask somebody here. You can borrow a book from my library, whatever, whatever you need. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. The next one is historically. So not just literally and grammatically, but also historically. A hermeneutic is historical, meaning the Bible was composed in varied cultures at varied times, and this is the backdrop of each and every text. The Bible was composed in varied cultures and at varied times. Now, I've got some fun ones here for us, uh, starting in Genesis 24. So let's go there together, and I'll read this. Genesis 24, verses 1 to 4. Now, I'll make a note here before I read this that... You can, 
You can discern the meaning of a given text apart from a historical study of it. Okay? You can discern what this passage in Genesis 24 I'm about to read. You can discern the meaning of it, sure enough, apart from having another book that tells you about the cultural customs. Um, so I want to make that clear. But you may struggle with the significance of what is going on if you don't have some of the historical background. You may struggle a bit understanding, well, why are, so why exactly are they doing that? I, I read what they're doing. I understand what they're doing. But why exactly was that important for them to do? You may struggle with that a little bit if you don't look at the historical context. So here's the example. Genesis 24, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Now that is an amazing thing. Verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord and the God of heaven and the God of earth that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But... You, sh you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And then drop down to verse 9. <clears throat> After a bit of dialogue, it says, So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So a couple of things here. Uh, when's the last time you asked somebody to put their hand under your thigh? <laughs> if it was recent, and if it was in the church, I'd like to know. <laughs> but... Uh, but that's a little strange to us, right? Place your hand under my thigh. But then also, what kind of relationship did Abraham and this man have? Well, close, but it, they give us titles here, master and servant, right? Now, that's a little interesting too. So again, you can understand the meaning of this. Apparently, there's a guy who's a slave and there's a guy who's his master and the master asks the slave to put his hand under his thigh and he swears to him. You can understand all of that, but now to understand the significance of all of that, or to define that further, um, you might need a little help in understanding the history surrounding the context there, because that just isn't something that we're doing today, okay, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, next one, Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, something very similar, except to here in Ruth, it's actually uh, spelled out for us a little more clearly, Ruth chapter 4. Verses 7 and 8. Would someone read for us Ruth 4, 7 and 8? Now that might take you a little while to find that one, but it's good that we're all turning there because you need to know where Ruth is, all right? The book of Ruth is there in your Old Testament. It's after Joshua and Judges. Get to the book of Ruth. 7 and 8 of chapter 4. Who can read that for us? Evelyn? Thank you. Okay, so verse 7 really kind of sets this up for us, where it says, this is the custom in Israel. When they're making an agreement, a dude takes off his shoe and says, there you go. Okay, again, kind of weird, uh, as far as like placing your hand under the thigh, pretty weird, but that's what they did. 
Now, um, also what's different about this one too is the Bible lays this out for us pretty clearly. If you've got a Bible with cross-references, yours should have a cross-reference over to Deuteronomy 25 where it talks about removing the sandal and all that stuff. But you can imagine that if that wasn't in the law and if Ruth, the, the book of Ruth, it didn't give us that, hey, this is the custom in Israel, and you just read, two guys were making a deal and one took off a sandal and gave it to the other guy, you'd be like, what is going on here? Again, you can understand the meaning. It's not like it's hard to understand. The guy took off a sandal. But the significance of that, you may just need a little help with. Okay, So I want to keep emphasizing that. You can understand the meaning, but emphasis or the significance may be a little difficult. Okay, One more, and then I'll stop for questions. That's in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6. This is one that you may have thought about a bunch of times, or sorry, read a bunch of times without really thinking about it. Ephesians 6, 14 talking about the whole armor of God. And let's see what this says. Ephesians 6.14. Who can read that one for us? 6.14. Thank you, Dex. Okay. Stan, did you gird your loins this morning? Did you gird your loins this morning? <laughs> are you speaking? Are we speaking in metaphor? <laughs> so, yeah. Now, what's interesting about this one is you got two things going on from our perspective. You have a historical issue. What does it mean to gird loins? And then two, that's also a metaphor as Paul's using it because he says, "Gird up uh, your loins." He's talking about in your mind because he says, "With truth." So. What does it mean to gird up loins in a historical sense? What, is it, what would it mean to gird up your loins? Yeah, yeah. You, gotta, you can't run with a longer robe or you trip over it, gird up your loins, you've got to bring it up, use a belt, sash, or whatever, tie it up. What does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Yeah, to prepare yourself. Because, guys, if they were getting ready, if they say they were dressed for the day and then they knew that something was about to go down, where they might need to be agile to either fight or to run away or whatever the case may be, they were going to get ready by girding up their loins because you don't want to be caught off guard and be tripping over your own dress <laughs> or whatever the case may be. And so there's a historical point there and a grammatical point. It's important that we you know, see all that when we read through Scripture. Okay, thoughts, questions on historical aspect of interpretation? Good. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. There are two um, Bible handbooks that are really helpful, or, or just a good, uh, simple commentary. So there's Halley's Bible handbook, and it's spelled uh, like this, eight with two L's and an E. Halley's Bible handbook that brings in a lot of that historical and cultural stuff. Um, there's another one whose name I'm forgetting all of a sudden. But there are a few good Bible handbooks out there. But I know for sure that's a good one. There's also good one-volume commentaries like the Moody Bible Commentary. It's a one-volume, and it's really good. That's probably my favorite one-volume commentary is Moody Bible uh, Commentary. You know, you can. it's like this thick. And you can get commentaries that thick on just each book of the whole Bible. 
And this is one that's this thick that covers the whole Bible. So it'll get you the, uh, that kind of information rather quickly. Uh, where this really comes important, becomes important, the historical aspect, is in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus is talking to the seven churches. And he brings up all kinds of stuff. He talks about a white stone and being thrown into prison and the Nicolaitans and uh, to the uh, Laodicea, to the church of Laodicea. There's a D in there. Uh, the church of Laodicea, he talks about hot, being hot or cold and being spit out of his mouth. Okay, all that historical stuff is really going to help. Now, again, you don't need those extra things to grasp the meaning of what is being said. For instance, when you know, someone wants to read the Bible, we don't say, okay, here's your Bible and here are six other books that are going to help you interpret it. We don't do that because we believe the Bible can be uh, understood. It's, it's easy enough that a child can understand it. However, those things are really going to help as you go into study, aren't they? So that's the distinction I want to just maintain. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. Consistently contextual. The normal and customary meaning of the text is favored. Scripture is consistent with itself, and we should be consistent in our interpretation. The normal or the plain and customary meaning is favored. So what I'm going to do to end this class today is I'm going to test how much we truly believe this with, a, with some hot-button topics. Okay? And I suspect uh, we'll be okay, but I'm still just going to test you. Let's all go to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, and let's see how consistent we really are. Leviticus chapter 20, and we'll look at verse 13. Now, literal, grammatical, historical, now we want to be consistent. Because you can say that you're all three of those things, and then you bump into a verse or a passage or even a chapter that doesn't comport with your preconceived notions. And then you say, hmm, maybe I'm not going to be literal after all. <laughs> this happens a lot. I mean, I say this to the shame of the church, this happens a lot where we bump up against things we don't like and we say, hmm, that must have been a metaphor. Or that must have been just for, you know, uh, you know a certain time and, and that doesn't apply anymore. Okay, well, let's check it out. Leviticus 20, verse 13. Who will read that for us? Leviticus 20, 13. Thanks. So here's the question, how does God consider homosexuality? Worthy of what? Oh, whoo, okay, bigots. <laughs> now, again, someone can say, look, I'm not going to be consistent. I'm not going to be literal. They can say, I have a different hermeneutic. I have a different interpretation. And they can say, I'm a Christian. But they're going to be an inconsistent Christian. They're going to be someone who's not taking God at what he says. They're not taking the full account of Scripture. They can do that, but they just have to be honest with themselves that that's what they're doing. Okay? John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12. These two go together. Um, John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12. So who can get John, the John 14 verse? Just one verse. 
Dax? And then Acts 4.12, another singular verse. Thank you, Mandy. Okay, so whenever you get there, Dax, go ahead, and then when he's done, Mandy, just go ahead and read Acts 4.12. So what about the really nice, good people that reject Jesus? They're still going to go to heaven, right? Ooh, you guys sound like raging fundamentalists. Bible thumpers? (laughs) Well, this is what the Bible presents, isn't it? That Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. That this is exclusive. This is exclusive. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the definite article, not a way, not a truth, not a life, the, the, the. So that when we interact with the culture, are you going to be consistent? These are the issues. And then there's 1 Timothy 2.12. I'll read this one for us. 1 Timothy 2.12, the Apostle Paul writes, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. (laughs) All right. So, um, women pastors, thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay. Again, not only in the culture, but even a lot of other people who will claim to be Christians will jump ship on this point and say, no, that was just for then. That's not for now. And what they'll do is they'll go to the historical aspect of things and say, that was a custom for then and not for now. Mmm. Joe. <laughs> well, what does quiet mean to you? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean you can't utter a word whenever we're gathered ever. That does not what the, that's not what that means. But there is a principle there, isn't there? There's a principle there that that the Lord wants us to embrace and apply. Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, he, John's not known for mincing words, is he? <clears throat> well, and where the... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and that's the model that's given in the New Testament. That's Titus chapter 2. Women are to teach women. The older women are to teach the younger women. The older men are to teach the younger men. And on and on it goes. Um, where it gets really dicey and where I've seen churches really struggle is with youth groups. Uh, so right now, we've got three Sunday school classes going all the way up to age 12, all taught by women. Where's the cutoff where it has to be men? That's tough, isn't it, right? Because the Bible doesn't give us an age. Uh, you have the Jewish tradition of the bar mitzvah when uh, young, well, when boys become young men, essentially. Um, but yeah, you have to wrestle with that a little bit. So. Other thoughts or questions on being consistent? Yes, Evelyn.
Amen. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Now, now you, you used, if I could correct one thing you said, you used the word easier. It's easier to tell your kids what, what God says than to make up your own interpretation. I would say it's simpler, but it's not always easy, right? Those conversations can be really hard. And I know that's not what you were implying, is that, yeah, it's just easy just to say, here's what the Bible says, and you move on. But just to be clear, we still have to have hard conversations. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And how difficult is it for those Christian parents when their own child comes and says, I'm bi or I'm gay or whatever? Yeah, that's, that's when it becomes really easy to become inconsistent. Um, in fact, I can't say all, but many, many people who go from um, used to believing that homosexuality was a sin to embracing homosexuality, have someone close in their lives, a relative, who has become a homosexual. That's, it, is, it is so, so tough. But the Bible, God says what he has said. Go. What? Hmm. No, you wouldn't do that. But you would lovingly point that person to the gospel, right? I mean, it, and that's the other thing, too, is we don't um, necessarily need to start off by addressing their, their most obvious sin. We all have sins. All of us have sinned in various ways. The, the issue with the, like the homosexual uh, circumstance there is that they've made it their identity. So, so many of them. Not all of them, but many have, especially the trans movement. It's very outward. It's very in your face. It's very like, this is, this is who I am. You have to embrace me. And so our conversations can start there, but more often where we should start is just talking about sin that we all have and then pointing the person to Jesus and just being their friend. I mean, I'm not saying don't be their friend um, at all. It's just the Bible says what it says, and we're going to be consistent. Right? Okay, let me give you one last thing real quick. This is really... Uh, Quick at the uh, end here, talking about exegesis. Um, yeah, this is basically what we were just talking about. To be consistent, <clears throat> consistently contextual means that we don't get to change the rules of interpretation when we dislike the meaning of the text. Yeah, that's pretty important. I like the way I phrase that. Um, exegesis, though, here's the, here's the difference between exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis is the skillful application of sound hermeneutical principles to the biblical text in the original language. Okay, so as you look at your blanks there at the bottom of your sheet, the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis is that exegesis deals with the original languages. And the view of exegesis is to understand and declare the intended meaning of God as the divine author and, of course, the human author. This is the uh, definition of exegesis I had to memorize for my Greek class in Bible college. That's why it's so wordy. 
is because a Greek professor came up with it, <laughs> and we had to memorize it. And if we memorized it and quoted it verbatim on a test, we got bonus points. So we all had an incentive to memorize it. But basically, the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis, because you'll hear these two words a lot, is that exegesis is going into the original languages. Hermeneutics is any of us reading our Bibles in English today. Exegesis is studying the original languages. It would be wonderful if more Christian lay people were able to practice exegesis, but unless you're a pastor, teacher, or a scholar, you'll do well to master sound hermeneutics, just reading it in language. And there are some great cheater programs out there that can get you into the original languages without you doing a full course on Greek and Hebrew. Uh, but I could introduce you to those sometime if you're interested, okay? That's the end. Thanks so much. I'll pray one more time, and then we'll go on to the next thing. Father, again, we thank you for this day that you've made. We ask your blessing on the service today that you would be honored in it, that you would help us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.